Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Addie Holstrand, and this is KWAD Radio, and we are live. Had a little difficulty with technology, so grab the phone instead. <laughs> uh, yeah, technology is a wonderful thing when it works. So tonight we're, we are talking to Eddie Upnick, and we're excited to meet him. He's definitely a well-rounded person who has done a lot of things, so we're, we're excited to get in and talk to him. Eddie, is that you? That's I'm here. <laughs> I didn't I, yeah. I didn't speak so yeah. Yeah, I had a message down below showing saying that I was trying to to uh fix my technology in order to get uh the Skype to work, but it's not working right now. So <laughs> I said, Okay. Well, <laughs> when well, when one technology doesn't work, just grab grab a different one, you know? <laughs> hey, whatever works in whatever era. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what you have to do. Uh, yeah, these 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 things are really cool, and there are a lot of great tools out now, and and we're able to do more than we've ever been able to do. But that's only when it works. <laughs> so I I know a, a lot of things about you. You've got you've done a lot, you've done a lot, and it's uh, interesting because you're you're well versed in a lot of things. Well, I guess that's what uh, liberal arts majors end up uh, having a little, little bit of knowledge in many different areas. Ah, is that what it is? <laughs> well, I I know that you're from Brooklyn, and uh, you were born in 1953, and you uh, graduated from there, and went on to well, you went you stayed in New York for a while, and uh, then you started working for as a joke writer for. Rodney Dangerfield, that must have been interesting. Oh, it was great. Um, you know, back in the mid-'70s, I was, you know, writing for a few TV shows, and uh, I had a managing agent named David Jonas, and he was setting me up with a lot of the comedians in the New York area to write jokes for them. 
And one of them, obviously, was Rodney Dangerfield. And a uh, uh, quick story for your listeners, when I was first approached and they said, Rodney wants to talk to you, uh, why don't you write you know, 30 jokes for him and when they're done, go to his club in New York, which is called Dangerfield's. And I went to the club, and he was on from about 11.45 at night until 12.30 in the morning. And when he came off stage, I was sitting at the bar, and he said, Oh, you're the kid with the jokes, right? Oh, come on downstairs. So I, I go downstairs with Rodney. And while I'm talking to him about nothing in particular, he gets completely naked. And he's standing sideways in a mirror, and he had quite a paunch, you know. And he's going, Hey, kid, is this a body or what? And I looked at him, I said, well, what? He goes, you're all right, you know. And uh, he liked uh, 15 or 16 of the jokes I wrote for him, and uh, that was the beginning. I was working for him ever since. (laughs) So apparently he liked liked honest people. (laughs) Yeah, you know, he he wanted you to be direct, but uh, he was quite a character on stage and off. And I certainly learned a lot from him. Well, it's interesting how that worked. I mean, uh, how do you get involved with, with, you know, becoming a comedy writer versus people like that? Well, it's easy, really. If you uh, if you like to write jokes for $10 a joke for the lesser comedians and you live in a place like New York City where you have plen- plenty of comedy clubs, you just go in there and you watch the comedians and after the show is over, you say, listen, I like your act, but I think you could use a little help on the writing. And you work out a deal with them and he'll... You know, pay you. I mean, back then it was ten dollars a joke. Hopefully, it's more now. But uh, yeah. you know, and, and so you, you know, you find a comedian and they'll go, oh, "All right, write some jokes. If I like them, I'll pay you ten dollars a joke." And of course, you get a bunch of guys that tell you they're only buying ten jokes of the eighty jokes, and then you go watch their act, and you find out that they actually did sixty of the eighty jokes, and you have to pin them against the wall to get them to write you a check. Uh-huh. So that does happen from time to time. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, here I, I thought that uh, that comedians wrote their own jokes, but apparently not. Well, they write some of their own material. I mean, some some comedians write all of their own material, but uh, you know, I they think the smart ones. Keep, yeah, they keep the you know they keep a window open in case there's somebody writing a joke for them that they really like. Yeah, yeah. So that was uh, for quite a bit of, of your life there, writing uh, writing comedy. Uh, from 1975 to 1996. Now, the, the other interesting thing is that you invented a game called Super Chess in 1984. Tell us how that happened. Because that's that's a total diversion from, in my opinion, from writing jokes. Well, I was a chess player, and I played on my college chess team. And when I was when I was playing chess, I you know I said, you know what, I think chess should be more open. So uh, the, uh, my analogy was the old baseball, uh, excuse me, football, NFL versus AFL, where the AFL was more wide open, and that's what I wanted to create, a version of chess that was more wide open. So I created a 10 by 10 board instead of the 8 by 8 board that you usually play chess on, and I invented four new pieces in addition to the regular 16 pieces that are on the board for each side, a cyclops, an archer, and super pawns. And I toyed around with it for several months with a bunch of the guys to, you know, work out how the pieces should move and how much point value they should have. And when I finally got it the way we liked it, I decided to uh, produce it. And 
you know, I, I made I made a game. I went to a game manufacturer, and he made up boxes for me. And you know, my wife designed the pieces, the the Cyclops, the Archer, and the Super Pawns. And it was uh, Games Magazine, one of their games of the year in 1984. So uh, they liked it too. Of course, it was not a money maker because you know only a small percentage of the population plays chess and right. only a small percentage of chess players will play a chess variant. So I knew it wasn't going to be, you know, a, a great thing, but I wanted to do it and I did it and uh that was that. Had an international tournament. At that time there was no internet. So people were playing by postcard. And I offered $1000 to the winner of the Super Chess tournament. And we had 144 entrants in 37 countries. And uh, some, you know, crippled man in Germany won, and he was so excited when I sent him the check. He was, you know, it took about three years to finish the tournament because, you know, making a right. move, sending right. sending a postcard to someone, you know, it, it takes a while. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, before Internet, it's funny how that worked. But, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, here you got into chess, and here you were a comedian, and and now you are an author. So how did yeah, well, that change? It didn't really change too much. I just went from script writing for television, you know, ghost writing for other writers. And, you know, eventually I had enough stories built up over the years from people that, uh, I, I grew up with three guys who were, went into very black ops kind of careers, and we'd get together once or twice a year and you know have a few beers, and they would tell me some fantastic stories from some of the things they were involved in, and I always sort of logged them in in the back of my head, and I said one day I'm going to write a book, and you know <laughs> it finally I don't want to jump ahead of the interview, but it, it finally clicked into happening when I met the Sidney Dows in Antigua uh, in 1995. He was uh, the real trigger for the writing of these three books. With the yeah, stories so he had to tell. Well, you were on vacation in 1995, and you met Sidney Dows, and he was instrumental in, uh, I guess, he, he was one of the men who escaped from Sagan prison camp. Uh, right. In if, if anyone wrote movie. <laughs> right. If anyone remembered the uh, the Great Escape with Steve McQueen and James Garner and all those people, yeah, yeah. great great movie. Um, he was actually one of the seventy six men that escaped from that camp, and wow. obviously he he wasn't one of the fifty that were shot by the Gestapo. Yeah, but right. he he was recaptured, and uh, he just told me stories. I mean, some most of the stories he told me actually happened before the war when he worked in military military uh, intelligence. He worked for Stuart Menzies. Uh, Menzies was the head of MI6, who had daily meetings with Winston Churchill. So I'm following him around in Antigua, trying to get him to talk about World War II. And luckily, we were there for a week, because the first three days, he would not talk to me at all. He just said, look, I don't talk about the war. You know, that's it. And his wife kept saying, oh, he's never talked about it in 50 years. He just doesn't go there. And I had given up. I really just said, all right, he's not going to talk about it. I'm not going to push him anymore. I was sitting at the bar on a Thursday night about midnight. And he turns to me, and he sees that I've given up. You know, He sees it in my eyes. 
And he says, all right, Eddie. He says, if I talk to you, you have to make me two promises. I said, okay, anything you say. He said, if I tell you what I know, he says, you have to promise not to repeat anything I'm going to tell you until after my death. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, the second thing is, if you do write about what I'm about to tell you, you have to put it in the form of a novel. I don't want to beat people over the head with what I know. If they want to believe some of these things, let them believe it. If not, that's fine, too. And I agreed. And then he proceeded to tell me stories that were not in any history book. And one of them in particular just completely blew me away to the point that I felt I had to write Time Will Tell, the first book in the series. Yeah, it was in uh, August of uh, 2011. Uh, What, the writing of Time Will Tell? Yeah. Well, well, I think I wrote, you, no, I wrote, wrote it, but yeah. Well, I wrote Time Will uh, Tell. Sydney died in 2008, so I uh, really so didn't you, didn't start writing it until that point. Right. And you know, I finished it late in 2009, and it was it was a challenge because you know I'm a creative writer. I write jokes for people, so I, I'm able to tell an entertaining story, but I had to include these facts, lost facts of history within the walls of the three novels. Right. And that was, that was you know, tr- it was fun and it was tricky at the same time. So, you know, I, I wanted to keep my promise to Sidney. Right. I mean, he had, no, he had no children. He told me he wasn't, you know, he didn't really want these stories to die with him. So I was the person he chose to talk to. The story that he told me that really, I mean, he told me many of them, and I'll be glad to get into them with you, but the one that just, you know, rocked my boat was he said Menzies related this story to him okay Sidney was not there so he was saying Stuart Menzies told Sidney Dow's this story in confidence that in July of 1939 two men came into British command headquarters carrying some kind of handheld device and they came in and they said listen we'd like to improve your radar system and we'd like to break the German Enigma codes for you the German Enigma codes were the codes used by German commanders to issue orders to their officers in the field. So if the British got those orders at the same time, they'd have a tremendous advantage. So Menzies said, sure, go ahead. And in 15 minutes, touching buttons on this handheld device in 1939, they improved the British radar system by 75 miles in their detection grid and they handed them the code keys for breaking the German Enigma codes. And as the men were leaving, the two men, they were leaving as quickly as they came, one of the men handed a piece of paper to Menzies. And Menzies opened up the piece of paper and saw 19 names on it. And he asked the man as he was walking out the door, he said, well, what are these 19 names? He said, those are German defect, those are German spies working in British intelligence. You better take care of them. And Menzies had these 19 men followed, realized they were German spies, and had all 19 of them secretly shot. <laughs> when, wow. when the men were leaving, it, you know, Menzies just said, well, well, who are you guys, German defectors? And they said, no, we're not German defectors. We're here to make sure a certain future doesn't happen. Okay. And when Sidney yeah. Dowse told me that sentence, I just got goosebumps and said, uh, i got to write about this. <laughs> <I> gotta, <laughs> somehow, some way, i got to tell a story based on, 
know, so, so I said to Sydney, I said, well, do you think these guys were time travelers that came back in time to make sure the Allies won World War II? And he said, I don't know, but that's what Menzies thought. Wow. So that was the trigger for writing Time Will Tell. And, oh, wow. Uh, that is totally cool. Uh, I'm very much a, a time travel fan. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, if you are, I think you're going to like these books, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's definitely interesting. Uh, Of course, I'm adding, uh, just for those who are listening, and I know you're listening because I can see you, um, I'm letting you guys know where to get his book. First one I put on the chat is Time Will Tell, and I'll be adding the other two as well uh, as we go along here. Uh, also, just to let you guys know that you can call in, I shouldn't have to be the only one that's talking, uh, to 714-242-5145. That's 714-242-5145. So, we talked about your your first one. Did you write them all at once and then kind of separate them and then decide, you know, where they were going to just end one after another or was it one continuous story? Well, that's a great question because I was undecided as I was in the middle of writing Time Will Tell how to proceed because I had the idea for the second and third books. But if I was going to write a trilogy, which I ended up doing, I was going to have to accelerate what happens in Time Will Tell. So the first half of Time Will Tell is about the time travelers that come back from the year 2133 to 1938, and they try to change the outcome of World War II. And they're chased back in time by two SS agents from the future with the most hideous weapon of the 22nd century. And the second part of Time Will Tell is what happens to the surviving scientists once the war is over. What do they do with the rest of their lives? And that story you know, moves right into future tense, which happens 20 years after Time Will Tell ends. The children and grandchildren of the protagonists from Time Will Tell find out what their parents were involved in, you know, in this top-secret world they were in, which they knew nothing about, and they get drawn into the conflict. And then 2052, the final book, is is the continuation and the end of the trilogy where... You know, it, it culminates in a, you know, in an amazing space battle in 2052, which decides the fate of the Earth. So, wow. Well, you know, it's interesting that okay, I'm, I'm reading your description. Uh, the year is 2133, and the Nazis control the world. Forest scientists are pressured to complete the time travel project in time for a 2000 or 200th anniversary of Hitler's coming to power. Uh, So you're starting the book basically in 2133, but you're ending it in 2052. Am I right? Well, Time Will Tell starts in 2133. Right. And it it ends in the year 2000. Ah, okay. Uh, So in other words, the the, the turn of the century then. Right. They, you know, the... The stars of time will tell, uh, you know, they die at the end of, you know, 1999, 2000. And then their children in 2022 sort of pick up the gauntlet and find out what their parents were involved in 
and they get drawn into international conflicts. I have a great story to tell you about future tense, which is one of the premises one of the premises I use in this book is that Putin is killed by one of his bodyguards in 2017. And this triggers the mob to take over Russia, and it becomes like a, a country of Al Capones, where they're selling nuclear technology to rogue states, and it's, it becomes completely unstable. So I sent a copy of the book to the Russian consulate in New York, and I circled the key areas where you know Putin is killed by his bodyguard, and I actually left them a phone number. And I didn't expect really to hear from them, but two weeks after I left the book, I sent the book, I get a phone call, and the, and the guy calls him, he says, Eddie Opnik, please. I said, this is Eddie Opnik. He says, uh, uh, we'd like to know, you know, we know this is a book of fiction. We understand it takes place in the future. But all fiction is based in fact, is it not? I said, some fiction is. He says, so tell us, which bodyguard is going to kill Putin? And I, I, I said, you got to be kidding me. I said, it's fiction. I don't, I don't know which bodyguard. I mean, I honestly, Patty, if I said to this guy some guy's name, I think they would have killed him. Yeah. You know, I oh, mean, it, it, was, it was the most bizarre conversation I ever had in my life. But, it's, it's, of course, it's fiction. But please, tell us which one is going to kill Putin. We must know. I, I, I said, I, I don't. It's, 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 a, it's a story. It's a novel. You know, it's a, couldn't convince the guy. He finally got him off the phone. I said to my wife, if somebody in a black limo pulls up and throws me into the car and gives me some pentothal, you'll understand. Yeah, I don't know why. They just want to find out which bodyguard's going to kill Putin. <laughs> it, it does go without saying that a lot of people have a tendency to believe fiction. And it's kind of interesting that they'll believe fiction, but they won't believe uh, you know, a true story. <laughs> so, in a way, you were wise, and here you wrapped it in into a time travel thing, obviously, because that's was partly about the the, the uh, thing, the little message you got was uh, something that was grander and bigger, and so you wind up wrapping it in, in fiction. And because of it, people believe it. <laughs> Uh, you, you're always going to have people that believe certain things and people that think it's hogwash, you know. So it, oh, it, yeah, of like, course, of course. I had uh, somebody who just, I just found out actually used to um, hunt Bigfoot. And you, I'm looking at him when this guy is writing a religious book. Uh, he's he prophesizing. He's, he's got the gift of prophecy. And he, he's telling me with straight face that he has uh, he has species from a Bigfoot that he has kept all these years, and would species. Is that what you said? <laughs> yeah. Species. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I I I'm sitting there going, trying to be uh, you know nice about it as possible. I said, okay, so you've got you got Bigfoot poop in your house. And well, most people you, usually make a mold of the footprint. You know, they, they don't usually go for the feces. This guy's a little right. unusual. That's unusual. And, 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 but the thing is that you would never think in a million years that this guy was a Bigfoot hunter. I mean, it, it just totally goes beyond his nature. 
And that's uh, a hell of a thing to put on your resume, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it just totally threw me. I thought he was messing with me for a while there as I was talking about Sibisian Mountains because uh, we live in Arizona. And I was talking about how I have a couple of brothers who gave me a book that, that showed, you know, to, uh, proof that they knew where the lost bedroom mine was. Well, I'm going like, okay, they're not rich. They barely pay for their books, and, you're t- and they're telling me that they found the lost bedroom of mine. And so they're showing me pictures of, of a guy behind a rock with a gun. And they're swearing that there's a guy behind a rock with a gun on the picture, and I'm looking at it really close, but I, I don't see it. I don't see it. And, <laughs> and so I hear, hear I'm mentioning this, and then he says, and he out of the blue says, well, um, I used to hunt Bigfoot. <laughs> That's why I thought he was kidding me. <laughs> and so it does take all sorts. I mean, people just get into things that are that are strange and unusual. And here you would think that that's fiction to them, but you know they they think it's true. And no matter what you tell them, they're not going not going to believe that it's not. <laughs> yeah, well, there are certain things I'm sure the government has been covering up, and there are other things, other times the government's telling you the truth, and you still don't believe them. So. Right, right, and and your story about time travel, which of course most people, you know, would definitely not believe, because that, you know they don't believe that that's actually possible, um, especially not possible yet. Yet there's times when you know I'm sitting at the convention and talking to people, and convention conventioners are like, "Well, you write time travel. I mean, that's not possible." And I said, "Who says? Who says that's not possible?" Because you you are discounting the fact that, that almost all science fiction has actually come to be. And they look yeah, at I me mean, and I, I said, hey, what, what in science fiction hasn't happened already? Because we already have, uh, you know, we already have a lot of things that have already already come to pass. The only thing that we have really basically left is time travel. So what makes you think that we don't already have it? Well, so, if there is yeah. time travel, you'd think that it is selectively used only in emergency situations. Well, you're hoping. You're hoping, yeah. Right, and then I would think, uh, you know, the outcome of World War II might have been, you know, one of those situations. Because when Sidney right. told me this story, I was, you know, I, I believed him because he was a very straightforward guy. You know, I, I, I'm a good reader of people. And he, you know, I mean, the fact he wouldn't talk to me for three days, and then finally when he opened up, tells me this story, I was like, whoa. I said, no wonder, you know, hasn't spoken to people about this. Uh, he doesn't want to be answering a million questions in his later years. Well, not only that, but he, if, if by, you know, divulging all this, he would probably be at risk. And so it is, you know, even though he may not have family at that time, he still would be at risk until after he, he's gone, and he asked you to fictionalize it. Yeah, so I don't know if he did that, you know. <laughs> he he just, uh, he, t- he told me an amazing stories. I mean, about 30 different stories that I slipped into the three books. One of them was about Churchill knowing about the date and time of the Pearl Harbor attack. He, he hmm. said on November 26th of 1941, uh, they broke the Japanese code. And they, you know, they they understood exactly what the Japanese were about to do. They were going to attack uh, Pearl Harbor on December 7th. And Churchill, there's a small chapter in the book called Churchill's Dilemma, and time will tell, 
But Churchill was undecided how to handle this because he was desperate to get the United States into the war. Mm. And he felt that if, if he told Roosevelt that this attack was going to happen, the Americans could prevent the attack, and then the Americans wouldn't enter the war in Europe. So he said, I, but I, at the same time, he says, I can't let them wipe out the American fleet in Pearl Harbor. So the, the solution, uh, the decision that Churchill came to after three days of thinking about this, according to Sidney Dow's through Stuart Menzies, was he decided to call Roosevelt and say, listen, between December 1st and December 14th, get your four aircraft carriers out of Pearl Harbor. Just put them on maneuvers, send them out to sea, do whatever you have to. And when Roosevelt asked him why, Churchill just said, just do me a favor and do it. So the four aircraft carriers the United States had in Hawaii were out to sea when the attack happened. And that is a crucial factor in the war because if those four aircraft carriers were sunk, we would have uh, been lost. The Japanese could have invaded Hawaii and and you know taken over the, the whole island. So it, it, that in itself could have changed history. You know the, the fact that he knew about it and. This was the compromise plan. But the shocking thing to Churchill after the attack happened was that the United States only declared war on Japan. We didn't declare war on Germany. So Churchill was flipping out. And there's a date in history that is just not well known, and I think it's the key date, the key blunder that Hitler made. On December 11th, four days later, Hitler declared war on the United States. Uh -huh. if, he did, if he didn't do that, I, I think the isolationist movement uh, would have prevented us from entering the European war until we finished the war in the Pacific, and that might have been too late. I think the Germans would have come up with the A-bomb first and uh, would have been a different history. Wow. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of great what-ifs, you know, uh, in history, and, and uh, uh, what, what would have happened if Hitler had actually survived and was able to, you know, win the war. That would have been a totally different world. Yeah, I mean, he could have, you know, conquered uh, Great Britain before he broke his non-aggression pact with the Russians, and then he would have fought the Russians, and one at a time, without having to fight a two-front war, he could have uh, attacked one country at a time and just taken Europe before uh, we got involved, and then it would be a race to who created the A-bomb first. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we we all worry about that. So, uh, if that would have happened, it would have been a yeah, definitely completely different world. Um, there's some authors who actually write about that. You know, uh, the what if, what if, what if that would have happened? And uh, Harry Trudel does does a really wonderful job of saying, you know, coming up with ideas on on what would have happened if if you know civil war would have been won by the other side and, and also that, you know, if Hitler hadn't uh, hadn't done what he did, as you said, if he hadn't, if he had not declared war on the United States, you know, it would have been a different war. So uh, it's definitely interesting how you were able to uh, you know, tell that story. Uh, and 2052 is uh, tell us a little bit about that and how how that finishes. Well, the interesting fact that I learned from my life 
that I put into 2052 was at the end of the book. Um, I, ha- I was an anthropology major in college, and I had a professor who I, I thought was brilliant. He did digs. He was on digs all over the world. And he told me a story, uh, which he didn't share too freely with many people, only a couple of the guys in the class that he liked. And he, he, he said that he went on a dig in eastern Spain. There was a gorge that had opened up after an earthquake. And they, went, they descended on ropes to go all the way down this gorge. And he found a piece of leather that had four steel studs in the corners. And, you know, I said, okay. He said, well, we carbon dated it, and the leather was 17,000 years old. Oh. I, said, oh, I said, okay. I, I said, well, how could the steel studs be on it? Because the Iron and Bronze Age didn't happen until 2000 B.C. at the earliest. And he said, exactly. He goes, if this thing is 17,000 years old, and according to him and the people he showed it to, the steel studs were put in there at the same time you know, that the leather was, was made, uh, then either the Bronze and Iron Age happened way before he thought it did, or he said some advanced society was on this planet 17,000 years ago, and he had no idea what this piece of leather with the four steel studs in the corners uh, did or what the purpose of it was. But he, he felt strongly that, and that cre- that created him to believe in von Donegan's theories in South America, the Nazca lines and everything, and, and he he went totally alien after that. And, and, you know, he was convinced that aliens were here 15, 20,000 years ago and advanced societies, and they were helping prim- primitive man survive. And I used that, you know, th- those theories to the end of 2052. I don't want to give it away, but it, it was I came up with a use for that piece of leather with the four steel studs uh, that I thought was pretty interesting. And uh, it's there. There are advanced beings that come into these books, uh, you know, that that are you know super give supernatural powers to certain children and certain people. It's a these books are just a fast read. I think anybody that reads them, you know, your listeners will enjoy the ride and they won't want to get off. Um, I mean, that, that's how I wrote them. I mean, they're fast-paced, uh, limited description, just action, action, action. I mean, when I was in seventh grade, I had a teacher that made me read Great Expectations twice in the same semester, and I was dying. I, I, I said, oh, I can't read about Miss Havisham's yellowing wedding dress anymore. I can't do it. And I looked at the teacher who was about 90 years old. I said, Mrs. Gross, can't we, can't we read something that we like, you know? Can't we read, you know, you know, The Hobbit, you know, something, something? And she said, you're not supposed to read books you enjoy in school. Oh, and I was man. like, why not? Why not? You know, and I was, uh, so I decided at that moment in seventh grade that if I ever became a novelist, I would write something that people would enjoy in school if they were ever allowed to read it in school. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, that's a real shame because I think it was in seventh grade that I actually was given uh, the opportunity to read Ray Bradbury. And before that, oh, why wasn't I, was I in reading... your class? I know. <laughs> that oh. was not only what opened me up to reading uh, for, the, for the love of it, 
you know, for the passion of it. But to be able to actually start writing, uh, teacher took active interest in not only my poetry, but my short story writing, and suggested I put it into the literary magazine at the library. And it was a science fiction literary magazine. And uh, I did, and got in. And that was in seventh grade. So, uh, you know, again, it's kind of weird how things happen, but I've been writing something all my life since then. Well, that's great. Teachers are so important. If you have a teacher that's willing to be open and, you know, open up your mind to the creative side of things, it's, it's great. I'm going to be talking. I didn't, to I didn't have that in seventh grade. But, I know uh, it's such a shame because that's <laughs> a that's a year in which a lot of things happen. Um, I'm going to be talking tomorrow morning to a, a room full of fourth to sixth graders, uh, which is you know younger than I was, younger <laughs> than I was uh, starting to write. But definitely, we use that story here. You know, you've got teachers who will inspire you, and you have some that don't, and. Yeah, that's a real shame <laughs> because, you know, I, it, it's great when they do. Absolutely. It's uh, it's so important to, to set you on the you right path. You might have written sooner, but then again, you you already you, you had already had the writing bug in you. It's apparently, you've gotten to do comedy writing. So yeah, I think I was definitely... a fan of the Dick Van Dyke show when I was a little kid. Yeah, see, and, and he and he was he played a comedy writer on that show. So yeah, yeah. I always said, hey, this is a good job. You can write jokes for a living. Yeah, that sounds like a good good living. Yeah. A good living. Um, I saw a picture of you with a dog. Uh, you, tell me about your dog. <laughs> well, it's actually not my dog. It's my uh, one of my good friend's dogs who um, I was at his house. That picture was taken at his house. And the black lab named Lennon uh, just was all over me. I couldn't get this dog. I mean, I, I don't know what it is about me, but dogs just love me. And wherever I go, you know, dogs are in my lap. And this this dog just walked up to me. I think I was a dog in a previous lifetime or something. I must have been. Because this dog just came onto my lap, and the picture was taken. It, it looks like, you know, I'm very calm in this picture, but I think I had my hand on Lennon's throat because he just kept turning his head to lick my face, and I was trying to hold him off, and that's when the picture was snapped. That was the back cover of Time Will Tell. Uh, it, it makes it look like you're really, that you're personal with this dog, you know? <laughs> you will. He's a uh, friend. <laughs> he's a, he was, he was well, wherever I went, he followed me around, and we had a great time. But uh, I have to admit uh, that he's, he's not my dog, but he still is around. And whenever I go out to California and visit my friend, he's uh, Lennon is there to lick my face at the moment's notice. <laughs> so the reason why it confused me is because here I see a picture of you with a dog, but in your bio you say you have parrots. That's true. I have two parrots. Uh, which I've had one of them for 36 years now, and the other one for four years, and they're on the covers of Future Tense in 2052. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, okay. birds are a little different than dogs. You don't you don't get the same kind of love, but uh, they do say some funny things from time to time. <laughs> they're they're your the joke writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, 
<laughs> well, the African Gray is quite a talker. You know, he uh, he's got a great sense of humor too. I have a a little ledge that he likes to walk on with uh, five big windows, and and as he walks on the ledge, there's a jogging path outside, and he bangs on the on the window, and people will turn, and he'll he'll yell, "What do you want? What do you want?" <laughs> And the people go, I don't want anything. And then he just starts laughing. <laughs> the, the bird has a great routine like that. Just, yeah. And a little bit of your personality, it sounds like, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's, uh, I guess uh, over the over time, uh, your birds pick up your personality. Yeah, it's like dogs. Or you here. pick up theirs. I mean, one or the other. Well, one or the other. So tell us what's next for you. What's coming up? So you've got the three books done, and well, now I you're sort of buried, I buried myself for five years writing these three books, and mm-hmm. now I'm just sort of coming out of the rabbit hole, and I'm uh, getting into the marketing phase uh, and seeing if you know if this can get into the mainstream. If it does, it does. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, you just do your best shot. Uh, I have a publicity agent who keeps telling me, you know, uh, 1.4 million books are written every year, and you know, less than a hundred of them make money. Yeah, I said, that's true. thank you for telling me that. That's uh, <laughs> I may as well just keep buying Mega Millions tickets. You know? Yeah, that's yeah. At least they're honest with you. That is, I had way too many authors who work with me, and it's like, well, how come I'm not a millionaire yet? You know, it's like that's <laughs> not how it works. Yeah, There's get way real. Too many books know, out there. Uh, yeah. Well, that's it. And I, I mean, look, I, I don't expect to get rich from these books, but I just wanted to get them out there, and I think people will find them entertaining. And uh, it's good escapism. Each book takes you about four or five hours to read. I've had a lot of people on my website that read all three books three days in a row, and uh, yeah. you know, they they really uh, seem to enjoy the uh, the escapism. Well, uh, you know, quite, I had somebody who was going to do all. The, a review for all three of your books for the newspaper. And I think I'll pull that away from them and <laughs> go ahead and do it myself. It's because I think that, you know, obviously time travel, I think I'm going to enjoy it more than this person will. So, well, I'd uh, love to have you do it because uh, <laughs> anybody that has a, a little time travel in them, I think they, they're my biggest fans. Yeah, that, and that's something, that, again, you know, everything time travel, I, I grab all of them. Uh, I write time travel myself, so that's why it's, it's interesting to me. It's always been interesting to me. So uh, getting the physics, and, and that's part of it. But uh, have you thought, considered doing, you know, going into conventions with your books? Because, again, they're, they're science fiction, speculative fiction type of stories. Yes, that's a, a good idea. I haven't done it yet. I think in 2013, uh, huh. I... We'll probably do some of that. Try to find the local uh, Star Trek, Stargate, Doctor Who. You know, the, those. You know, if you like those shows, you're going to like these books. Does you you live in New York still, or are you back yeah. here somewhere? Yeah, I live in uh, in Queens, and uh, I've been here pretty much my whole life. Very exciting. Okay. Well, what I'll do is I'll I will send you the link of the convention that we do uh, that I happen to be the uh, co-chair for next year, and oh, I'd love let to you do know that. let you know about it. So you know, Arizona is quite a bit of ways away, but you never know. You might be in the tour, and you can 
fit us in, you know? Because <laughs> I think that would be, right. be a great asset to the convention. And, of course, you'll get a, cha- I'll get a chair and too. a table, and I'll bring some books, and we'll have a party. There you go. <laughs> we'll have a time travel party. It'll be fun. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Come as a different character in time. There you go. It's, it's always fun. Um, so you're not going to write anything more after this, or, or are you just kind of considering, you know, that you want to take some time off of writing and just promote? For now, I'm just going to stick to the marketing side um, after writing the three books. Uh, this trilogy is over. I have some other ideas for different kinds of stories. Oh, good, good. Uh, that I may get into in the future. and uh, You know, I mean, inside of Future Tense, I had a lot of, you know, of my imagination of what the future could be uh, mm-hmm. for us between the years 2022 and 2028. And, uh, you know, it, one of them was uh, that 40 states in the union want to secede economically from the other 10 states that have incredible deficits Yeah, uh, yeah. to prevent the economic collapse in the United States. And there's a $50 trillion deficit. We're only at $16 trillion now, but uh, the way we're going, we could get there. You know, the price of gold yeah. is over $5,700. There's an overpopulation problem. So a lot of these things I touch on in the book, and one of my pet projects that I, I think would be a real winner in politics is to create desalination plants where you turn okay. seawater into fresh water. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> I mean, you, you wouldn't have any droughts. You could pump the water into the Midwest uh, in a situation like this year where the corn crops are drying up. You'd yeah. never have a nuclear power plant that can't get enough water. And if you have excess water, you sell it. You trade it for oil or some other commodity. So I think it would pay wow. for itself. You could hire tens of thousands of people. But uh, I'm not in Washington. I'm just uh, hiding in my cubicle here. <laughs> There's, uh, I had a couple of guys on uh, earlier in the year who have a book about uh, selling Hawaii to China in order to get us out of debt. And it's fiction. But you've got, including the uh, who's going to win for the election this upcoming, you know, this 2012. And... Uh, it was interesting how we had said, well, they were you know, sitting around saying, well, how can we get out of debt? How do we get out of this? How do we get out of this huge debt? And so and his friend said, well, what if we, what if we sold the trade back to him, to somebody, you know? Well, they, they, said, probably well want to, they, they probably want Alaska <laughs> and not Hawaii because they want the oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not and that's why I said it. So why Hawaii? I mean, I mean, it can't be worth that much money. <laughs> and no, they said, "Well, you know. you'd be surprised how much Hawaii's worth." And, and they said, "You have to read the book to find out." <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, but, well, um, you know, I love I love creative people. I mean, uh, whenever you write something and you do something creative, you're putting yourself out there. You know, and there are people yeah. that are going to like it, people not going to like it. But artists, architects, anybody that does something creative, I have tremendous respect for. Because you're, <laughs> you're, you're putting yourself out there and, you know, 
damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, and whatever happens, happens. Yeah, that's, that's what you got to do. You come up with ideas, and, and it's like, well, hey, you know, it's fiction. It's just an idea. Yeah, that doesn't mean it's going to come true, but the, the idea is that, you know, what if it did? Yeah. Well, I had a different solution to the $50 trillion debt. It's a very bizarre one that happens uh, in uh, future tense, but <laughs> I think uh, you may get a kick out of it. Awesome. So I'll be able to, to talk about the different things. Yeah, I got their books, and then your your book will be interesting to see what you came up with. Right. Well, we're almost at the end of our show, and there's one question I always ask, especially the, those that have good sense of humor. <laughs> uh, and the question is, now that you've successfully slain the dragon, how will you celebrate? Oh, I guess I'm going to Disney World. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, Slaying the Dragon. Does that mean that I wrote three books? Well, um, you, you've successfully done something. Yeah. Oh, and so well, that could be the dragon. Well, I just want to keep push, pushing forward. You know, I got to keep, you know, have another project and another project. You know, you, you never never want to retire. There you go. Never retire. It says my my son who's eighteen says, you know, um, I could retire now. <laughs> I'd be happy. <laughs> I said, I said people don't retire anymore. It's just it's just not done that way. So it kind of depressed him. And uh, and I said, well, you know, it's, it's kind of funny that you would you would say that because again, the idea is to keep moving. Keep, keep going, keep doing things. So if you're retired, uh, you know, business and business, you you still are not retired in life. My grandfather used to have an expression. He he would just say, when someone asked him about his job, he would just look at him and go, "Grind on, <laughs> just keep grinding <laughs> on." And, uh, <laughs> keep going, keep moving. Yeah, that's it. You just you know, just just never stop. You know. People get in your way, you know, just keep moving on. Keep doing what you got to do and uh, get it done. That's, that's always good, very good uh, information for us. And, and, hey, I'm really excited to, to delve right into your books and, and uh, I'm going to get them and start on it. Because uh, I think it's going to be very cool to to, to read. So yeah, they, uh, they just came out on audio books as well. Uh, this this last month, Time Will Tell and Future Tense came out on audio books, and 2052 will be in about a week or two. Very cool. Yeah, I hired a narrator who had a great voice, you know, and did good characters and that kind of thing. So yeah, people yeah. who don't like to read and would rather listen, you know, long-haul truckers or, you know, well, you know eye problems, actually, whatever. That's the second uh, location, you know, that audio books are actually... Uh, so the sales are on the rise. It's actually right underneath Amazon. So I think you're wise in doing that. I just found out that the numbers are very are going higher because of the fact that a lot of uh, uh, the retirees are actually taking instead of reading books, they're they're listening to books and they're taking them on vacation with them. And you know, so that, that's uh, yeah. I mean, if you're lying a on a blanket on the beach, you'd rather listen than read. Right. Right. They can make exactly. sense. 
you want to hold on to a book, you just, you just stick earplugs in your ear and and enjoy the story. <laughs> well, all of these options are there on my website, uh, eddieupnick.com. There you go. I was hoping you'd get that N-I-C-K, and uh, I think, uh, you know, people will, will enjoy these if uh, they have a chance and have a little time to read them. I or am. listen to yeah. them. And I also, of course, have all three of your books from Amazon on there. But definitely get on his website and take a look. Find out more about person on their website than than you can on Amazon. So with that, I'm going to say good night and and thanks so much for for coming and talking to us because I think I got a lot of great uh, insight to your stories by talking to you. And that's what's great about talking to authors. Well, I I thank you for having me on, Patty. Uh, It's a chance to uh, get the message out there and uh, you did a great job uh, and I thank you for having me. <laughs> no problem. In about an hour I will be sending you the code for this the show so that you can share it in a, you know, over and over and over again. Because uh, even though we may not get live listeners or I know you got a few live listeners there, uh, we have a lot of people who come back later and will listen to it. You know, it, it broke a record last month with 4,600 listeners. So it's, uh, it's, it's going up by more than 1,000 a month. So very exciting. Very that's happy right. to hear that. Yeah. So that's only good news to you. <laughs> that's it. Well, you got to, to read Ray Bradbury, and I was reading Great Expectations twice. Uh, you, you got a leg up on me, Patty. <laughs> oh, yeah. And after that, I read, you know, inspiration. I wanted to read everything of his. You know, I wanted to read everything of his, and and really got into all the science fiction, and, and uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, it opened the doors for me in my mind. So that's, yeah, sorry to say that, but, you know, some people actually have an open mind to great expectations, so you never know. It's all a matter of what you wanted. You wanted to, you wanted to read The Hobbit. <laughs> it was the second time I had to read it. That, that's that's when I lost it. I, I said, no, no, right. we're not reading this again. Well, no, 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 I can't take any more of that, but. Stay lovey. That was quite a long time ago, but yeah. I still remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much, and I'll be talking to you later. And I will be in touch with you about Leprechaun so that we you, you can find out about it. Okay. Yeah. Please, please send that to me. I'd be very interested. And when the review comes out, I'll definitely be sending you the PDF version and the online version on the Connotations newspaper, so that way you say, "Oh yeah, she actually did it." <laughs> Sounds good to me. Okay. Thank you. Good okay, night. Patty. Good night. This is KWAD Radio, and this is Patty Holstrand, and we'll be signing off, but before we do that, um, I can let you guys go that fast. I wanted to let you know that we've got a media kit for beginning uh, authors uh, webinar this Saturday at uh, 3 o'clock, 4.30 Arizona or Mountain Time. And uh, that's through learnitlive.com. And uh, you look up media kits, uh, media kit for beginner, and you'll be able to see the webinar. Also, so next week I don't have a show, as far as I know, 
I definitely have one the week after, which is going to be on September 20th, Thursday, September 20th, so two weeks from today. We'll be talking to Lynn Boston again about his second book uh, in his Through the Third Eye book series. And that's Thursday, September 20th, more likely the same time, 6 o'clock. So with that, uh, i got a lot of virtual book tours. You guys need to check out my, my uh, blog, which is azpublishingservices.blogspot.com. Uh, got lots of uh, different authors being uh, in that, uh, that post on there. Uh, so that way you find out about all these cool books that are coming out and these authors that like to write. So with that, I'm going to say goodnight because we're, we're on one minute here in the closing. Definitely check out eddieupnick.com. As that definitely sounds like a very cool story based on, on, you know, a story that was told to him. And who knows? Who knows? Uh, life is weird, and, you know, then we die. So with that, I'm going to say goodnight. This is KWAD Radio. Patty Holstrand signing out for the day.